yeah, those two games finishing those ways simultaneously, it was so much fun and incredible. One of those days where I was glad to be home with a big screen and have them side by side and all of that. Otherwise, if I had been at, at a game, I don't know. I would not have understood that those things happened simultaneously. I would have seen them five to ten minutes later on Twitter or someone on our team talking about it in the Slack channel. And I would never have gotten the same sort of real-time understanding of how the bracket changed in just those moments. And those things all happened at halftime of the Bell game. And so I didn't have to divert attention away from that to, to catch all of the excitement there in New York. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman and Greg Thomas. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, your weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 294, season 15, episode 17. It's the podcast for November 13th of 2021. It's the one that has a bracket. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I write Around the Nation. And Pat, I don't have anything witty to say this week. We've got brackets. It's surviving advanced season. Let's get into it. I think surviving advance is witty enough. Uh, in the uh, season where you know we have a, a bracket, I mean it's it's just great to have a bracket back, right? Uh, to have a season, of course, we've been talking about that multiple times that there was a season this year. Now to end with a, a championship bracket of 32 teams on the road to, in case you lost track, Canton, Ohio. It's Canton, Ohio this year. Uh, that's what it was supposed to be last year. So instead, it will be Canton, Ohio in 2024. In the interim, we're going to go to Annapolis, Maryland. Then we're going to go back to Salem, Virginia, and then we're going to go to Somewhere else in Texas. Is that Humble, Texas? Humble. Humble, Texas, right. So we will, uh, we're going to be, it's going to be the travel and road show for the Stag Bowl, Stag Bowl over the course of the next few years. But this is one that is going to be in the cold at the Hall of Fame Stadium in Canton, Ohio. Uh, you know, mere miles, a veritable, but not literal, stone's throw from the University of Mount Union campus. Mount Union, one of our four top seeds in this bracket, a bracket of 32, which has 27 automatic bids, which is a thing, you know, obviously, Greg, we've known about this uh, for a long time, but it seems to come as a surprise to people every year that it's not the top 32 teams in NCAA Division Three football. It's those 27 and then another five. Yes, and that is really consistent with every team tournament at every level of the NCAA, every conference gets their conference champion into the tournament, and then the field is rounded out with at-large bids, decided in, you know, typically similar ways, but not always the same. There's process for that, um, but yeah, most of the most of the field is conference champions. The conference champions are not always better than teams that don't make the field. That's just part of the deal, and you know, in Division Three football. We have a very large percentage of the field that is made up with conference champions and a very, very small percentage of at-large bids to fill out the 32-team field. Yeah, we're definitely stuck here at 32 for a couple of reasons. There's 239 teams in Division Three. There's 229 if you don't count the NESCAC, and we can't count the NESCAC in this conversation because they don't participate in the playoffs. So you take your 229 teams and you divide it by the 6.5, which is what we're supposed to have one playoff team for every 6.5 schools that uh, offer the sport in Division Three. So we should have really 35 teams in this bracket. The problem being is that there's literally a hard cap at 32. We can't get beyond 32 teams. It can't get beyond five weeks either right now. I mean, it was such a struggle. It was, you know, literally a decade of discussion, a decade of schools getting left out before we finally got to the point where we were able to get enough schools to agree to expand this from a four-week playoff to a five-week playoff because football is a game you play once a week. Um it is really difficult to cram the cram more games into that same amount of time. There's no other bracket that is more than three weeks. That's my recollection from spending as much time as I have following Division Three sports. And for uh, football to go from five weeks to six weeks, I just don't know how that would happen. It took us forever to get from 16 to the 28 and then to the 32. 
And yeah, so we're short. We should have three more at-large bids. We should have not had a discussion about Johns Hopkins versus uh, Ithaca or Ithaca versus Bethel or whatever. All of those teams should have gotten in, probably even including Harden-Simmons, probably including maybe uh, Baldwin-Wallace or someone like Gustavus Adolphus or maybe even Merchant Marine or something like that, but that is just not the way we're never going to – a 35-team bracket is what we're owed. We're just not going to get it. No, and just, you know, by the nature of football, the way that football is played and on the schedule that you play it, you just can't really squeeze in any more teams. If you add any more teams to the 32, you add a week to the playoffs. And like you said, the time frame doesn't work. We're not going to get more than the five weeks that we have. We're probably not going to start the regular season any sooner. We're probably not going to eliminate a bye week from the 11 week regular season. So, you know, the football season, as it's defined in the NCAA for Division Three, you know, starts at a certain point in August for practice and ends at the fifth week of the playoffs. And that's it. That's the that's the time window. And I don't see that that's going to change anytime soon. So 32 teams is what we got. And it's pretty great. <laughs> I mean, all things considered, right? Exactly. Um, this is the day of the year in which we get the most complaints directed at us on Twitter, uh, as if we were the people who selected the brackets and left Harden Simmons out ourselves. I think those people, I could direct them back to our bracket projection where we had Harden Simmons in the field. Um, it is not our call. Uh, we do not set that bracket. We don't get that budget. We just report the news as it happens and yeah, it's fun. It's fun. I uh, I take more fun with it now over the course of the last five years or so than I uh, did before. I think I remember about whatever year it was, Guilford players were all up in our grill about it. It's like, dude, nope, not us. Hello. Win more games. You know, those sorts of things, right? Um, yeah, it is, uh, it is the day that uh, all the, the uh, crazy people come out and uh, follow D3 football on Twitter for the first time. But we had like 2,400 people on the website at one time this afternoon on Saturday after, Sunday afternoon. And that's a lot of fun. And just, you know, seeing people react to those brackets. These are not bad brackets, frankly, Greg. I don't think so at all. Um, you know, I think, I think we did a good thing here by figuring out a way to get the number one seeds sorted out appropriately. I think I know we had trouble figuring out how to accommodate North central and whitewater and St. John's all kind of in the same area, all his number one seeds, and then build a bracket around those. And, you know, the committee did a good job figuring out how to accommodate that. Well, the committee can always authorize flights in the quarterfinals, and we are very rarely uh, able to do so when we project, right? Cortland, RPI, Springfield, Endicott is generally going to have to fly to North Central, Albion, UW Lacrosse, that sort of thing. Um, you know, Those just aren't things that we would build into our bracket because they seem outlandish. You never know where they're going to be able to spend money, right? Yes, that's, that is correct. And I think that, I think we've been, you know, told over the years that the, the the number one goal, the number one mandate to the committee is to find as few first round flights as you can. And we know from talking to committee chairs past that they will also sort of look ahead at probable second round matchups and try to avoid unnecessary flights there as well. It's often why you wind up with, uh, you know, island pods getting put together. So you have, you know, condensing your flights into one region or one pod. Um, but beyond that, the tournament is generally unpredictable enough that you can't really project flights or not flights in a quarterfinal or semifinal round. We're going to do a bunch of our usual categories. We'll do some of our categories that we do specifically after selection Sunday. Uh, we'll hand out our game balls and that sort of thing. There's one more kind of big picture item, Greg, I want to talk about, uh, here before we get into game balls and that sort of thing is, it seems like I've jotted this down as committees gaming the system, and then we can decide whether that's an accurate or an appropriate uh, term to use, or people can come to us and tell us whether they think that's appropriate for us to use it. But 
what we saw this week, uh, and now that we get the final regional rankings again over the course of the past few years to see these sorts of things actually happen, it is good transparency to see Susquehanna move its way into the Region 2 rankings because that bolsters Johns Hopkins' candidacy for an at-large bid when it's compared nationally. And then similarly in Region 5, seeing Wash U move into the bottom of the rankings, which really bolstered Wheaton's at-large candidacy. I want to start with this one because it seems like there's a really obvious way in which this is I'm going to go maybe all the way out and say incorrect that WashU should not be ranked here based on what the criteria actually say. It's it, for me it's hard to see on the on the merits of the criteria how you get WashU into the bottom of the Region 5 rankings. Um Washington University lost to Chicago early in the season. Chicago lost to Monmouth and Monmouth lost to Wartburg. And that's a pretty clear chain of head-to-head results that would indicate to me at least a pretty a pretty obvious pecking order, particularly when Washington University is seven and three versus Chicago's eight and two. Uh, there's strengths of schedule are similar. Washington has a win against a region. Well, they do now. They have a regionally win, win against Washington, but they're not ranked. Washington 0-3 against ranked teams, um, including two non-competitive games against Wheaton and North Central, the two other ranked opponents that they lost to. I don't, I don't know how you, how you move Washington ahead of Chicago. Um, I just, I don't, I don't see how that happens. And we've seen, I think we've seen over the last number of years, regional uh, advisory committees stretch the criteria to get certain teams ranked that help teams that are ranked higher have better athletic or better at large profiles. I don't know that I've, I don't know that I've seen a committee kind of break the criteria to do it. Um, and, and it, this one looks like maybe they did. It's very interesting, right? In football. I mean, we have so few criteria that are applicable head to head and common opponents are basically almost never really relevant. Obviously that we're, there's a very big head to head that we just talked about in this particular case. Um, but you know, so many teams in 10 team conferences, which means you have just generally one non-conference game to play with. There's not a lot of data points there. Like those teams, uh, teams in those conferences, the strength of schedule is almost always going to vary somewhere between 480 and 520 and never stray too far out of, uh, out of that, that really narrow band, making strength of schedule almost useless. You have to, you know, evaluate strength of schedule on some sort of uh, bizarre little sliding scale. It's just, uh, it's really, it's, it's really difficult to do. I guess my question is, and this is a big picture question that neither you or I can definitively answer, but I want to put it out there in the ether is like, is the role of the regional advisory committee to make the best possible resume for the teams in their region or is it the role of or is it the role of the committee to put the best teams the best at large teams based on the actual criteria into the into the playoffs it just seems like when you start going and putting teams in the bottom of the region rankings in order solely to bolster other teams i feel like that's a step in a too far direction i i would agree um i at some point, you know, you, you sort of feed the, feed the conspiracy bit when you start doing things at the bottom of the rankings that don't make any sense. And, you know, like I said, you, we've, we've seen racks stretch the criteria to include teams, but I don't, you know, ranking teams that I wouldn't have ranked in that order, but I can understand how they got there. And wash you. This one is this one is just really off the board a little bit for me because we can you can debate strength of schedule or results versus ranked opponents. Those are, you know, they they're intended to be objective criteria, but those those measurements and how you talk about them are are sometimes subjective, as we've talked about the difference between results versus ranked opponents and record versus ranked opponents. Um, 
the thing, the part of the criteria that I think you cannot really subjectify are the head to head results. Like <laughs> right. Chicago and Washington played, they played a game yeah. and Chicago won and Chicago has a better win percentage. And this one is, this one baffles me. It really does. We've already gone maybe too far into this podcast without thanking a very important group of people which helped us get here to this point, helped us get back to the time when there's a selection Sunday, helped us get back to the time where there's a bracket to reveal and to talk about, and those are our Patreon subscribers. Patreon subscribers are doing uh, some great work for us. They are enabling us to fund all sorts of things. In large part, of course, they help keep the website alive during the year in which there was no nothing uh, of any uh, really note in NCAA Division Three, and, you know, helped keep that, helped us pay bills. Those are things that happen. Bills happen. We have to pay them. Now we are able to do that by, you know, the kindness and generosity of these uh, people who subscribe to us via Patreon. What they are doing is they're pledging and paying a certain number of dollars a month. Sometimes it's three, sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's 20, sometimes it's 50 in order to help keep this operation alive. And we're using it to do all sorts of things. It is. And this week is a perfect week to point out how much Patreon helps us because the the content on the site is gonna is gonna boost up this week around the nation this week we're gonna do traditional playoffs surprises and disappointments uh, with a distinguished panel of guests um, you know we're gonna have playoff capsules for all 32 teams we're gonna have features on teams that have made the playoffs and learn more about some of these teams that we're gonna be following a little bit more closely over the next few weeks and all of that is possible because of the donations and uh, support that we get from our Patreon subscribers. This past weekend was the busiest weekend we've had on the d3football.com scoreboard all year. It will get even busier next week. Even though there are only 16 games, we're going to be updating them literally as quickly as possible. These weekends are often difficult because we have like one or two people trying to track eight games at a time. Now we're able to bring people in to help those things happen because we have the funding to do that. So thank you for that. The scoreboard's very important to us. The scoreboard's very important to you. And that is something that we are keeping churning because of Patreon subscribers. So if you are interested in helping us out, there's two ways you can do it. You can subscribe to Patreon by going to patreon.com slash d3sports. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patron with an E in it. Or if you are more someone who might want to give a one-time donation, we got a couple of these this past week. Thank you very much to those people. You can go to d3sports.com slash help. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And my game ball is going to go to St. John's quarterback Chris Backus is a guy who, you know, now has been the starting quarterback for St. John's for a handful of weeks. He came into the lineup during the Gustavus Adolphus game back earlier this season when Aaron Severson got injured, injured, going to miss the rest of the season. Backus has been a career-long backup, has been a guy who backed up Severson before that. He backed up Jackson Erdman and has been in the starting lineup for several weeks, including for this big game on Saturday against Bethel in the MIAC title game. And he struggled a little bit early. Bethel went up 14-0. Later in the game, uh, Backus got got snuffed out on a sweep on the six-yard line, fourth and short, did not convert. That was a time in which St. John's really needed to get that first down and get in the end zone. They were still trailing. But a couple of drives later, Backus had a huge scramble out of the backfield. He set the Johnnies up in Bethel territory down to the 10-yard line. And that is with Henry Trost out of the game, the uh, the big running back who's carried a lot of the load, especially lately, for the Johnnies. Then at the end of that drive, literally fourth down and four with just seconds left, he hits tight end Alex Larson for the game-tying touchdown, and St. John's converts the extra point and they go on to win 29-28. to Big game for him, both with his arm and with his legs, uh, especially his legs late in the game, especially on a snowy afternoon, as it turned out to be down the stretch in Arden Hills, Minnesota. Backus on the afternoon finished 
with a game high 16 carries for 103 yards and the touchdown also had a touchdown through the air and because of that big performance and that clutch performance down the stretch at the end that's why he gets my game ball you know on saturday we were uh maybe maybe it was just me joking in the slack channel about what kind of crazy thing was going to happen in that two minute drill that was going to have St. John's win the game. Uh, I voted for a Bacchus interception fumbled by a Bethel cornerback uh, on the return, picked up by a Johnny's offensive player in return for an offensive scoop and score. Uh, I was wrong. It turns out that the, that the crazy play there was Chris Bacchus running for about 20 yards through the Bethel defense like he was in the Matrix. That thing was that scramble was incredible. It really was. Uh well I, I well executed play is not really the thing that comes there, right? I s- assume that's not a uh, that's not how that's drawn up. Just a, a good job of him recognizing what was available in front of him, taking it and getting them, you know, a huge huge chunk of yards they really needed. Indeed. And my game ball is also going to go to uh, one of our down to the wire games this week. I'm giving my game ball to RPI All-American soccer player Trevor Bisson. What? That's right. Trevor Bisson just wrapped up a great career with the engineers on the soccer pitch, but when RPI was not selected to play in the NCAA tournament, Bisson traded his soccer boots for some football cleats. This was on Monday. On Saturday, Bisson was RPI's top choice for place-kicking duties, and in a moment that will live in Dutchman's shoes lore forever, Bisson squared up a 36-yard attempt with no time left in a rainstorm to win the game 19-17, to win the shoes, win the Liberty League, and send RPI to the postseason. Trevor Bisson, Division III football player for all of six days, here's your well-earned game ball. Not black and white, Ritter. Right and wrong. What the committee got right. I My pick for what the committee got right in this bracket is, this is going to make me unpopular, but I'm... Nothing if not unpopular for things that I say on this podcast about, say, teams in the top 10. Uh, And this is about leaving Harden Simmons out, leaving Harden Simmons out of the field. Um, You know, Harden Simmons with, uh, you know, not playing a D3 team in non-conference play. They've played they played Wayland Baptist, who is a uh, team in the NAIA, was two and eight this year. They basically have no significant wins. It feels like Harden Simmons has gotten by for quite a while on their main selling point being losing admirably to Mary Harden Baylor. And while that's laudable, um, if Keith were here, Keith would be saying, what would Keith be saying, Greg? Do you remember? He would say, who did you beat? Yeah, it's not who you lost to, it's who you beat, right? Um, actually, I think that, it might, that might be the thing that I say, or I said, but Keith just uh, went on and uh, continued to uh, use it. Uh, in, in, uh, in very appropriate circumstances, I think this is one of them. I mean... You know, if, if you don't have a significant win on your schedule, you may not get in the tournament. And if you want to get in the D3 playoffs, play D3 teams. And I understand, right? You're in Texas. Maybe you're, there are other schools who are also not in uh, not in positions where it's easy to get non-conference games. But I think this is, uh, I don't know if this is a message from the, uh, from the uh, Region 3 committee. You and I talked about this before we got on air, right? I mean, the... The committee just basically buried Harden Simmons. Uh, they put them behind Randolph Macon in the Region Three rankings. Basically, there was no way that Harden Simmons was ever going to come to the table. Randolph Macon had to get in the playoffs first, and that was very unlikely to happen. And so Harden Simmons just basically never even got discussed. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's an important thing. I think we went along most of this afternoon after the bracket came out, thinking that Harden Simmons was on the table and just didn't get didn't get picked, but the the region three committee shuffled Harden Simmons further back. And I think that is definitely a message from the people who decide the order of, you know, the pecking order of the at-large teams uh, that, you know, you need to need to either beat Mary Harden Baylor or, you know, help yourself out with some division three competition elsewhere, which, and I don't mean to pile on Harden Simmons because I understand geographically that's difficult to do. There just aren't a ton of teams around them in division three to play, but um, maybe, maybe that's a priority or maybe you play, maybe you play Mary Harden Baylor twice. I don't know. (laughs) Those would be great games. Are you kidding me? Of course, Mary Harden Baylor has to be willing to play those. Mary Harden Baylor is going to Iowa, right? To play a non-conference game um, that this home and home with Simpson, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these are just, 
I don't want to say the cost of doing business, but it may be necessary, right? It kind of is. We've, you know, you've, you have situations around the country with teams that are in conferences that are geographically spread out. And if you have chosen to be a member of one of those conferences, you do, you know, that's the, the cost of doing business. Um, you know, the North coast athletic conference, Allegheny is moving, I'm sure in no small part because the cost of being the easternmost extreme team in that league is, is more than what it's going to be for them to join the pack next year. I think that was probably a significant part of the decision to seek a new home outside of the North coast for them. And that's the thing is what, how much are you willing to resource your athletics programs if you are in an isolated situation to enhance their ability to compete in the postseason, what do you think the committee got right? So I stepped all over the thing that I thought my the committee got right earlier. So I'm going to choose another thing on the fly, and I'm going to say that I think they got it right when they put Bethel in the tournament as an eight and two team. Um, Bethel's performance against St. John's, who wound up being the number one ranked team in the West region. Uh, They played two really close games against St. John's. They have one other regionally ranked win against Gustavus Adolphus. Uh, They have a strong strength of schedule. And I think the committee showed that they had a willingness there to select a a two loss team with strong primary criteria. I think they made the right choice in selecting Bethel. And I think Ithaca probably would have had a really good chance to get in the tournament as well had Region 2 done something different with their order of uh, of Hopkins and Ithaca. Yeah, we talked about this in our debate over selections on Saturday night, and we wrote about it in the story, and I think we really – we knew that, that that decision was going to be pretty much key to somebody's at-large hopes, whether it was going to be Johns Hopkins or Ithaca's or Bethel's or apparently – you know, who knows what else, right? Uh, that was uh, that was definitely kind of the linchpin on which a couple of potential at-large bids kind of rested. What did they not get right, Pat? Well, let's see. As for what the committee did not get right, I, there isn't a ton, because like we said, I think this is a pretty good bracket. If I'm nitpicking about who is home and who is away, uh, which I have done on this podcast previously, that's a sign that the bracket is pretty good. But for example... I look at a couple of these matchups, and I think Endicott should be playing at RPI. Albion should be at UW Lacrosse instead of the other way around. It's as if the committee wasn't doing what it says it does when comparing these teams, which is to say, take them and compare them head to head on their criteria. Instead, we've got Albion, who is the Region 4 number two, hosting UW Lacrosse, who is Region 6 number four. Uh, but UW Lacrosse has the same number of D3 losses, they have a significantly better strength of schedule. Lacrosse's losses to the number two in its region and Albion's losses to a team that's not even ranked, not even close to ranked, never ranked, not ranked. Albion beat UW Eau Claire by three. Lacrosse beat Eau Claire by 24. I just don't see how Albion is a higher seed here. Uh, similarly, RPI is the four and the two and Endicott is the three and the one. I'm just going to go super shorthand here. That RPI has a better record. They are nine and one. They have a 531 strength of schedule. Endicott is eight and two and has a 519 SOS. This stuff just doesn't track for me. And I know someone out there is screaming about RPI not allowing people to attend its home games. I believe that that was uh, rectified during this week and they had uh, uh, all of the local reports out of uh, the capital area in Albany, New York, said that uh, that they had relented, that that was going to happen. So it's not about who RPI was going to allow to uh, get onto its campus and get into its stands. Anyway, doesn't track for me. It's as if they said, well, Endicott is the number three team in the region and RPI is number four in its region, so therefore it must be Endicott. Not all regions are created equal. And it really seems like they created, they assumed all regions were created equal and that is my rant. I'm super ranty about that. Doesn't make any sense to me. Agreed. But that is a great opportunity for Endicott to host a playoff game. For sure. I really liked what we had. Didn't we have an Endicott-Salisbury game? Um, we had goals and goals, right? We did have goals and goals. And they were going to play for the, the bronze stale bread. <laughs> the bronze stale bread. I'm pretty sure that's almost entirely what we had the previous week between... Uh, uh, William Patterson in Salisbury, some sort of bronze 
bronzed hoagie, right? It was the bronzed hoagie for the bronzed Wawa hoagie. Mm, hoagie. What do I think the committee got wrong? I'm also kind of nitpicking uh, because I don't, I don't really see a lot of stuff that's egregiously wrong with the bracket. Um, the Rose Holman at DePaul matchup stands out to me as something that is a really odd pairing of multiple lost teams. Usually you'll see this kind of thing with an Island USAC team that can only bust to an ODAC team or in the Northeast when Husson qualifies and there's only a few teams that they can get to by bus. It's strange to see this kind of pairing between two schools that are really pretty versatile in bracket In bracketing. There's a lot of places you can do and go with DePaul and Rose Holman. Interestingly, more appropriate matchups might've been Rose Holman at Birmingham Southern. And that works within the old 500 mile rule. 500 miles. And Huntington at DePaul, which works within 600 mile rule. Now we'll ride 600 miles and then we'll ride 600 more. But does it really make sense to have those teams crisscrossing on a 10 hour bus trip across I-65 when they have playing partners that are 30 and 90 miles away? Sounds kind of sus. It, it, is, it is quite sus. Um, I wonder, I do wonder though, if this was something that is a last minute edit that was made by, for non-football reasons, um, that happens. Sometimes committees will submit a bracket to people who have to approve the bracket, the people who have to cut the checks for the said bracket, and they will send it back and say, no, not this one. And they have to make a quick edit. This, you know, this seems like this would not have like Rose Holman at DePaul doesn't seem like it would have been this committee's first choice, but they may have been, um, they may have been given a suggestion about how to fix something or change something. Once upon a time, we would have referred to those people as the bean counters. What's the most intriguing thing in this bracket you think people might have missed? I think of, so there are five conferences that have multiple teams in the field and two of those conferences, they have teams on opposite halves of the bracket, North Central and Wheaton are on opposite sides, and so are Whitewater and Lacrosse. Uh, more often than not, when we talk about conference rivals playing for national championships, it involves some pretty significant suspension of disbelief. But would we really be surprised to get regular season rematches of North Central and Wheaton or Whitewater and Lacrosse? I think those are not outlandish things that could happen, um, and that would be that would be interesting. I don't know that we've seen. I don't know that we've seen that conference conference rivals playing. For the Stag Bowl. Not since uh, Wittenberg and uh, Wittenberg and Baldwin Wallace, I think both of them were in the OAC back in the back in the way back. Oh, now I'm going to go. I'm going to stall here as I go load up the playoff history page on D3Football.com in which you get Wittenberg and Baldwin Wallace. It was in 1978 played in the Stag Bowl in Phoenix City, Alabama, Baldwin Wallace. 24 to 10 victors over the Tigers of the OAC when they were both in the OAC. So that's the last time. And if, man, if I had gone to Whitewater, I would have seen both of those. I would see both of those games and I would be perfectly prepared for either one of those rematches. It would have been. Would have been, yes. But then I wouldn't have had uh, three uh, great beers at the um, Peanut Pub or whatever it was in Pella, Iowa, or had a good conversation with Blaine Hawkins and Jeff McMartin. So there you go. We'll leave that in. We'll leave that in this time. The The peanut pub did not get into uh, last week's podcast, but it's going to get in 294. There we go. My best first round game, or at least the one I'm most looking forward to, is Bethel at Central. Uh, if Bethel can get a bunch of those rabid home game student fan base people to make the four-hour trip to Pella even better, but even for just what's going to be on the field, looking for a good combination of offense and defense. And this is a game that's really more worthy of a 4-5 matchup rather than the 2 versus 7 that it appears to be set up as. And I cannot talk about Bethel at Central without talking about that epic 2007 national quarterfinal game. Epic for the way it was played on the field. Epic for the snow and uh, ice storm that it was played in. The extra long halftime in which they tried to clear off the field. And then, of course, epic amongst uh, people who uh, people who are in the know because it took four hours to get to Pella and like 12 hours to get back because of the roads. I had one of those in 2007 when Wabash played whitewater quick trip up ice storm during the game. The interstate was closed. We had to take non-interstate roads all the way back down and it took like 12 hours to get back. 
Oh, fun. Indeed. So first round, uh, best first round game. There are plenty of good options, but I'm going to go with Johns Hopkins at Salisbury. Hopkins, they're the big surprise to have made the field while Salisbury is carrying the NJAC flag in a year when the NJAC was really not great. Uh, Hopkins, they play a wide open offense. They sling the ball all over the place. They spread the field. They've got a capable running game. Salisbury, as we know, they play the triple option. They pair that with a strong defense that benefits from the Seagulls' clock-draining offense. Uh, those contrast of styles in this game, it's really intriguing. And as an all-Maryland affair, the winner of this game will receive the bronze crab cake. Mm, bronze crab cake. All right. That's good. I didn't even have to uh, didn't even have to roll the dice or anything like that. Uh, best crab cake I've ever had, by the way, no lie, is in the press box at a Baltimore Ravens game. I was covering a Ravens Colts playoff game in January 2007 for a former employer. And man, I would have bronzed that one if I could. I would have taken a whole box of them back with me if I could. Those were I understand it's press box food. I don't know who was catering that day, but it was amazing. And I have not had a crab cake anywhere near that good since. I mean, that that's what you get in the NFL. It's big time playoff game and everything. A lot of discussion about uh, every year about who has the toughest path to the stag bowl. Uh, and I think at least for a contender that has to be Linfield, right? These are the teams they could face and all of them would be on the road. St. John's then Mary Harden Baylor then Wheaton or Whitewater all to get on the road to Canton, Ohio. That's a tough draw, obviously. And, you know, that Linfield-Redlands pairing in the first round is a pairing that could really have been moved around to almost anywhere in the bracket. It did not have to be sitting there opposite St. John's. No, you know, the winner of that game has to go find somewhere. Could have done a lot of a lot of things with that, um, you know, but traditionally they are going to pair that up with another islandy place or to the closest West coast closest to the West coast uh, team, which is going to be St. John's in this. Um, I, I do agree with you, Pat, that the best answer here is Linfield, but I will also say that uh, Mary Harden Baylor's path is difficult. Trinity is going to be a challenge for them in the first round, second round game with Birmingham Southern and Huntingdon, not quite as stout, but then it looks like the crew are going to be hitting the road. If they go any further, potentially up to Collegeville or maybe, Maybe they would host Linfield. Not sure. Probably, but not sure. But if they're hosting a Linfield team that just left St. John's victorious, we'll know that the Wildcats are not going to be bothered by any kind of rowdy home environment. Uh, really, there are three teams on my title shortlist in the St. John's region, and any of those three have the most difficult path, I think. This is yet another year where Mary Harden Baylor gets its second round opponent first and its first round opponent second just because of travel, right? At a glance, that first round game looks like a two seed versus a four seed between Mary Harden Baylor and Trinity, and that Alabama game is more like five versus eight. My off the beaten path highlight comes from two of the bottom teams in the Ohio Athletic Conference in a game where Wilmington finished off a two and eight season by beating Otterbein 37-33. There are nearly 1,000 yards of total offense in this game, that was, and it was the second-to-last game to finish in Week 11. I'm just going to shout out WPI-MIT. It's the shortest game on the schedule and the last one to finish. Traquez Parks had a defensive extra point return that gave the Quakers a 10-6 lead early on in the game. Later, Otterbein stuffed Wilmington on fourth and goal from the two, and then you know how it happens when you get a turnover, right? You go up top right away. Well, you have to do that twice when you're 99 yards away. So two big plays of 48 and 51 yards to be in the end zone 44 seconds later. Obviously, Wilmington probably had higher hopes for this season, but the Quakers won their final two games, and they finished the year officially 2-7 and seven overall. And for my off-the-beaten-path highlight, I'm going up to Newburgh, Oregon. Tied at 10, George Fox, defensive back Lucas Schwinn, intercepted Whitworth quarterback Gio Fragoso with four minutes and nine seconds to play. The Bruins capitalized on the short field to score the go-ahead touchdown with 146 to play. That's an eternity in college football, Pat, and Whitworth rattled off 12 plays over the next minute 44 to set up a fourth and goal from the Bruin 11 with just two seconds left. Brad Newhoff and Seth Hoyland have the call on the final play. He's got two receivers to the left. One to the right. Listen to this crowd as they are screaming. 
Football team's hopping. Fergosa's going to throw it. Looking to throw. Game's over. Throws it in the end zone. And Lucas Schwinn knocks it down. The senior ends it for the Bruins as they win this one 16-10. And how about that for the senior Schwinn? What a way to end a college football career with a beautiful play in the end zone on that one. Schwinn comes up big again for the Bruins, knocking the final pass down in the end zone. George Fox finishes the season 6-3 and three overall and alone in second place for the first time in their history at 6-1 and one in Northwest Conference play. Surprise! My most surprising result from Saturday is Kings over Wilkes. Remember how high Wilkes was riding after the first six weeks of the season, right? Colonels were 5-0, and oh, but we detailed how that record was propped up on a really poor strength of schedule. That is like podcast number, I don't know, 286 or something like that. Anyway... Despite that, Wilkes still came into the final against its crosstown rival, Kings, 5-3 and three in the conference, while Kings was 3-5 and five in league play. And Kings just took it to Wilkes, and they won the Mayor's Cup 34-7. They held Jose Debora to 5-14 of 14 passing for 41 yards, and Wilkes just had 94 yards of total offense on the afternoon. Mayor's Cup is one of the unsung rivalries I really enjoy. All of these ones that have, you know, teams that overlap in terms of recruiting area that are on top of each other uh, or near each other geographically. Um, I really enjoy that. And you can bet Kings is a little happier about finishing five and five because it ended with them beating their arch rival. I believe that's a quick hits winner for you as well. Yes. My most surprising result on Saturday afternoon, as I was uh, crunching numbers and putting together mock regional rankings, the Sage Hens of Pomona Pitzer were getting busy smothering their Sixth Street rival Claremont Mudscripts and reclaiming the Sixth Street rivalry trophy by a final score of 24 to 10. In addition to losing to CMS in week one this year, Pomona Pitzer entered this game having just lost to Laverne, while the Stags were riding high after defeating Chapman for the second time this season uh, the week before. The Sagehand defense played their best game of the year, limiting Skyak leading rusher Justin Edwards to just 56 yards on 22 attempts. Sagehand quarterback Evan Flitz threw two touchdowns and ran for a third. The Sagehands finished their season four and five, but they do end like Kings on a high note with the surprise rivalry game win. You prompted me to go back and look at quick hits because I had already forgotten what I wrote on uh, Thursday night for this. It was which rivalry game will produce the biggest upset. Uh, there were some pretty ridiculous suggestions here. There were two Monon Bell games. So check mark for both Doug Rothschild and Frank Rossi. And then, yeah, I got Kings over Wooks. I kind of had forgotten about that. I really do, really do like that game. <laughs> I have to get out there at some point for that one. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now's the time of the podcast where we go to Twitter. Boy, if we learned nothing from the last 36 hours or so, it's that you guys know how to tweet us. Um, and sometimes people get offended when we clap back. You know, I'm sorry. That's just a thing that is going to happen occasionally. If you clap at us, we may just clap back at you. But this is a, a question from Sean Gannon, who is at Sean Gannon 44, asking, just curious is St. John's one seed due to the MIAC having a conference championship? In a traditional 10-game schedule, St. John's plays the fourth or fifth place team from the other division, which hurts their SOS. Does this put on other conferences to have a conference championship? Two questions here. Two good questions, I think, worthy of discussion. Uh, I do think, Greg, that, frankly, St. John's one seed is basically due to playing Bethel that second time. It is a boost in strength of schedule. It's a boost in uh, terms of uh, results against regionally ranked opponents. And for St. John's, you know, playing Bethel a second time rather than playing McAllister or, I believe, Hamlin at all is a, uh, is a big boost for sure. It is, and I think we saw that. We saw that because St. John's leapfrogged Whitewater in the Region 6 rankings this week from the second published rankings to the final rankings. So yeah, the the extra criteria boost that St. John's got from getting another win against the ranked team and getting the you know the the strength of schedule boost that comes from playing Bethel helped them propel over Wisconsin Whitewater and really made them an obvious number one seed choice, not something that was really debated in that in that situation. I think also, you know, St. John's played. Aurora in the non-conference schedule. Uh, 
that helps as well. Finding good ranked teams from other conferences to play also helped. And that, you know, that Aurora game helps them be in the conversation for a number one seed, regardless of what they did with Bethel. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's two-edged sword, I think, with the Mayak championship game. I think you run the risk of knocking a team out. Uh, you run the risk of losing a home game. You run the risk of having not the best team in your conference represent you in the playoffs if you get an upset in that championship game. Boy, the basketball people know that. Absolutely. And, you know, it worked. It really worked out for the Mayak this year. Obviously, St. John's got a number one seed, top-ranked team in the Region 6. And Bethel selected as an at-large. But I will say all of the things that needed to happen to make Bethel viable as a pool C candidate happened. Like they really pulled the inside straight across the country with union losing and Ithaca losing and Baldwin Wallace losing all of those. Like if any one of those things doesn't happen, we may not have Bethel in the tournament with two losses. Yeah, MIC really uh, lucks out in this regard. So I don't think this put it puts it on other conferences to have a conference championship. We have definitely seen conferences um, kind of try to make things a. I think the really the uh, the intent here is not to make your champion look better in strength of schedule. It's to protect your bottom teams who are not really capable of competing against the top teams in the conference. So in this case. The MIAC is protecting the bottom two teams in each division by not forcing them to play the top teams on the opposite division. We've seen the uh, North Coast do that a couple of times uh, in terms of keeping teams from having to play uh, the bottom teams in that conference. And it kind of jumbles the standings. You see teams go, you know, like seven and three and get close to an automatic bid who haven't played any of the good teams. You see the Mac right now. The Mac is pretty big in football, large in terms of they have a lot of number of teams, right? Um, so some, there are, uh, similarly a formula in place so that the top teams don't play some of the bottom teams and that sort of thing. Um, those things kind of come and go. I don't think it's a viable model though. The only really way, the only way to have a really robust, meaningful conference championship for football in division three is to have the full 12 teams and then be able to play that 11th game. That is a, a true conference championship. Yeah. And I, you know, it worked out really well for the Mayak this year, but if they, you know, if they continue with this model indefinitely, there there will be a year where a really good team doesn't make the playoffs because they had to play that that championship game and get and lose a second game or, you know, have your conference champion upset and miss out on a bid that way. So it it, it worked out this year. Other years it won't. Um, and you made it, it's an interesting point you made about other conferences that don't play full round robins. Like the North Coast didn't in the past, the pack was too big to do this for a while. And we had one year where the pack had two 10 and 0 teams. And I mean, that worked out for them, but that's not how you want to, that's not how you want to crown a conference champion with two teams that didn't play each other. Um, so yeah, it's the conference championship. I don't, I don't see widespread adoption of, conference championship models in 10 game or 10 team leagues great question though thanks sean for that question and uh, every sunday when we do this podcast hit us up we'll answer good questions i don't think we generally answer questions that say how far do you think my team will go you know i generally if that's important we'll talk about it during the course of the rest of the podcast might see something like that in the capsules Yep, you would definitely see something like that in the playoff team capsules, and you'll see a lot of opinions on that in Greg's upcoming column, which he mentioned surprises and disappointments for the tournament bracket. All right, so Harden-Simmons, number 10. Number 10 in the country does not go to the playoffs. What uh, What's the rest of the damage here in the in those terms as well? You know, really, our, our top 25 poll did pretty well. Harden-Simmons ranked number 10. They did not make the playoffs. Number 10 in our poll, number 5 in Region 3, apparently. Um, number 20, Ithaca, in our poll, did not make the tournament. Number 21, Randolph-Macon, did not make the tournament. And number 22, University of Wisconsin-River Falls, did not make the tournament, but they will be uh, they will be playing in the Isthmus Bowl. Uh, against uh, against WashU, the... Uh... 
regionally ranked WashU. Regionally ranked WashU. That's what I was trying to get at. The uh, eighth ranked team in Region Five. People were talking about UW River Falls on Sunday. Uh, River Falls three non-conference games were against Hendricks, Elmhurst, and Northwestern. A combined six and twenty-three, making uh, River Falls. Uh, one of the rare things, a WIAC team with a strength of schedule of below 500, there was no chance that uh, River Falls was going to get into the conversation, let alone into the field. But a great year for them, and they haven't had eight wins since we've been a website. Um, like my high school baseball classmate, Adam Cowles, played quarterback at River Falls when they were good, and so that was like 96, and so that might be the last time that they were that good. And they're not done. Falcons are going to have a really, really good chance to win a ninth game. I would make them, I would make River Falls very strong favorites in that game against Wash U. Um, it's a long trip from, uh, from St. Louis to Madison, Wisconsin, too. It is. So, you know, not River Falls, great season, not done yet. And they may, they're going to end up ranked in the top 25 when this is all done, it looks like. Do they even have Culver's in? Missouri. They do. They have Culver's in Missouri, so it's good. I guess they can get some butter burgers on the way up there. That's a, that's helpful. Wash you. They'll roll up there with some toasted rab to go. Oh, it's been a while since I've been in St. Louis. Oh. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 294, released on November 15th. 2021 thanks for listening and hey lots of coverage throughout the week please keep an eye out for that keep an eye out for it because frankly i'm not going to get a lot of sleep this week because we're pushing some of this stuff out the door but you can support production of this podcast and of the d3sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com d3sports even if you can't afford to support us financially you can help us by telling a friend a classmate fellow alumnus even possibly tweeting at us angrily about the show might be helpful i don't even know it's an algorithm that could happen you can also rate and review us in the various places that uh, people rate and review podcasts you can reach us to talk more about division three football on twitter using the d3fb hashtag i'm at d3football on twitter greg is at wally wabash we have a message board devoted to division three sports did you know join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com also you can follow d3football.com on facebook the executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well, and you can find them at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Frank Rossi and James Baker. and the Well, I mean, th- those are the folks at uh, in the huddle. <laughs> thanks for their help this week. Thanks to Greg Thomas, my co-host, and thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on d3football.com, Keith McMillan. Bingo. At least I don't have to edit an on-the-spot into from seven minutes down to two. That's always the that's always the pain. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.